Chapter 18 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michelle Kinge, from Surrey. United Kingdom. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life, Chapter 18 by Helen Campbell. Life on Blackwell's Island, the dregs of a great city, where criminals, paupers, and lunatics are cared for. A convict's daily life drinks our curse. Long ago, in days just preceding the Second War with England, New York boasted of two or three famous gardens and certain orchards planted by sturdy Dutch burghers and yielding fruit impartially to their successors. From Kipp's garden, Roses were plucked for Washington on his last visit to New York, which he wore in his buttonhole, and which made the trees from which they came always thereafter a prized possession. From an orchard no less famous came early summer apples, harvest boughs, and later Newtown pippins, which were said to have a finer flavour in the orchard on Blackwell's Island than even in their native home at Newtown. Here on Blackwell's Island were to be found apple blossoms, bloom of cherry and peach and plum, tender green of grapevines for spring, and for autumn all manner of fruit, pleasant to the eye and good for food. Yet over all this was always a shadow the forerunner of the darker cloud in time, to settle more heavily, not only on this, but on the whole cluster of fair islands, which one by one have renounced orchard and homestead, and given place to buildings grim, grey and formidable, and with each year more crowded and more numerous. Certainly no fairer spot could well have been chosen as a home, and the man whose story is the forerunner of many another of far sadder and more tragical order may have seen, as he walked under blossoming trees and remembered better days, men whose feet would tread the same paths and know the same regrets. The unending squabbles between Dutch and English for the possession of New York, the horror of the pious Puritan at the easy-going, beer-loving Hollanders, and the eagerness of both for every chance of despoiling the Indian, all form part of the history we study in youth, but fail to grasp as an actual reality till some experience puts life into the pages, and we suddenly see men living and breathing like ourselves. There is little record of why one Captain Manning chose to surrender to the Dutch 
the English fort of which he was commander. But choose he did, and marched out, leaving them in possession, making his own way as speedily as possible to England. He was compelled to return and meet his accusers, nor could any influence ward off this disagreeable duty. In time, the court-martial, called to inquire into the case, met and brought six charges against him, on each and all of which he was found guilty. Family influence saved his life, but there was no saving him from the deserved dishonour of cowardly surrender, and he was sentenced to have his sword broken over his head to forfeit all rights of citizenship, and never to receive office under city or general government. This was the end of Captain Manning for all public life, and when the broken fragments of the dishonoured sword fell at his feet, he turned toward the spot which a few years before he had chosen as a retreat for his old age, and on the then nameless island hid his face from all men. Time dealt kindly with the offender. His stepchildren grew to womanhood, and one of them presently married young Robert Blackwell, to whom the old captain left the island, which had taken his name at the celebration of the wedding. For a hundred years the family continued in possession, but in 1828 the city brought it and put up cheap temporary buildings for various purposes chiefly as almshouse and its dependencies. By 1850 it had become plain that more room was needed, and the cornerstone of the present workhouse was laid. The penitentiary had preceded it, and the convicts themselves quarried the blue stone rubble and the heavy blocks of granite which formed the sea wall and many of the buildings. Today the island holds the penitentiary, workhouse, almshouse, lunatic asylum, blind asylum, charity hospital, hospital for incurables, and for convalescents, with the numberless outbuildings necessary for the carrying on of work and feeding and providing for some 7,000 persons. To know the story of today's life on Blackwell's Island, one must take passage on the boat that leaves New York every morning with its crowd of prisoners, visitors and officials. The air from the river is welcome after the throng on the dock through which one must push to reach the little window behind which stands a suspicious clerk whose business is to get as many in the next room in a given space of time as can be handed on. There one meets a stout and remarkably good-natured policeman, whose face belies the sternness of his voice, and once beyond him must pass under the eyes of the old man, who orders back the stray women who insist on going through the wrong gate. He does it philosophically, as if nothing else could be expected. 
and there is something of the same attitude in all the older officials. On the boat itself, one may see types of every form of poverty, crime and evil inheritance, and thus gain some sense of what those nearest them must almost inevitably be. Saturday is Visitor's Day, and the tub of misery, as the boat is called, swarms with friends of paupers, insane and convicts, most of them carrying fruit or small luxuries, and all busy in telling the tale of why they are there. The prison van, known as the Black Maria, rolls through the gate with its load of human misery, prisoners sent up to the island. The crowd make a rush forward to find the gate suddenly shut in their faces, but as the next van appears, rush again, no wise deterred by their experience. No, you don't, says the old gateman. They'll get out well enough without you. Certainly, they could hardly get out worse. The door of the vehicle is opened and the waiting policeman receives the first instalment of women sent up for drunkenness or other offences. Two descend quietly, but a sound of jubilant singing within warns him that one at least is not yet over the carouse that brought her here. Some force is necessary before she can be induced to move, and then in the doorway, appears a creature hardly human, it would seem, in woman's dress, but with little token besides of womanhood. A mass of foul, gutter-soaked rags, matted hair with a black eye and cut face, and on her feet, one shoe and a man's boot. She lurches forward, still singing and shouting, and is followed by a young girl not over sixteen, gaudily dressed and with painted cheeks. Behind her come seven others of all ages, one a white-headed woman, muttering and cursing. What? Down again today? the policeman says to her. You've been quick. You only got out yesterday. She answers with a curse as she is hurried on with the rest to the room with barred windows, where they sit till the island is reached. One violently insane patient is led along, handcuffed and protesting, and there are one or two milder cases of insanity. Then comes the van with the men, whose cases have been judged at the various city police courts. The first, a boy of twenty, who has come from the country, and in his endeavour to see life ended by a three-week sentence to the workhouse. Behind him comes a man just emerged from a prize fight who will need the hospital before his sentence can be worked out, and then a row of young thieves of ruffians on their way to prisoners' cells in the penitentiary, who chafe and jeer each other as they pass into the hold. All about are the friends, some sympathetic, a few ashamed, but for the most part of the same order. One quiet little woman in black 
looks with sorrowful eyes at the brutal faces. Her own boy is on the island for thieving from his employer, and she has a little basket with fruit and some luxuries. The trip from the city requires but a few moments. On the journey, we pass Bellevue Hospital, whence come physicians, nurses and crowds of eager students, who sometimes to the number of 300 or more go over on the hospital boat to the clinics at the charity hospital, shouting and singing on the journey after the manner of their kind. The prisoner's boat is manned by men detailed from the workhouse, and it soon appears that they rank many grades lower than the prisoners in the penitentiary, offenders in the latter considering themselves aristocrats in crime, and those with the longest sentences and most aggravated offences highest in rank. The workhouse recruits are brawlers, bummers, rounders, anything that expresses the nature of the chronic tramp and shirker, or the habitual drinker. Their dirty brown uniform stamped on the back is less exhilarating, it appears, than the zebra-like stripes of the convict, and it is equally so among the women. Often there seems to be among the prisoner's friends a certain pride in the position, and women vie with one another in the number of times some relative has been sent up, and what he or she said to the judge who sentenced them. The cost to the city, cried a stout Irish woman, who had crowded a meek little woman from her place, and now looked around, prepared for battle. The cost to the city, is it? Sure, didn't I hear me own son say, him that was sent up for nothing but a bit of fun with the little Jew round the corner, that he'd heard the warden say, "'Twas but fifteen cents a head. More shame to them that starves the helpless, says I. They'd make their own grandmother's bones into broth and be licking their chops to think how nate they'd saved expense. Sure, the whole island's like that, responded a moon-faced woman near her. There's naught but spoon victuals in all the lunatic asylums, and them as in it fit to break in two with the hunger. It's them doctors, does it, to see what'll come next. They always standing by with their books, writing and writing down the best way of getting folks out of the world. What you talking about? broke in one of the deckhands, a workhouse prisoner, but evidently an unaccustomed one. We've had the asylums grab and it's better than we get in the workhouse. They feed em high to make em get well quicker and save the city expense. And there's many a one goes out cured. For my own brother is one and stands up for the doctors. It's a masher, maybe. You are on the bowery when you're out of your present suit, the big woman began wrathfully, but the whistle sounded. The deckhand hurried to his post and blocked the way against the pushing throng till the boat was made fast, holding himself meantime as if the word masher had recalled former glories. The prisoners marched off the boat, a motley throng, a young girl hiding her face and weeping bitterly, a drunken woman and her baby sent up by her husband as a last resort, a man shrieking with the horrors 
and beating off invisible monsters with his clenched fists, a lot from a dance house in Water Street, arrested and sent up for disorderly conduct, and two wretched old hags in worse case than any of their companions. From below sounded piercing cries, and the masher shook his head. Them lunatics don't know what's good for em, he said confidentially to a frightened-looking woman who shrunk back as the cries went on. You don't need to be scared. He's in a close-shot ambulance that it took free to get him into, and it'll take more'n free to get him out. He's worked hisself up so. The cries went on. Shrieks for help, appeals for mercy, curses on those who were torturing him. Sounds that made the blood run cold, and yet they meant no more than the extremity of delusion. An old man with bent frame and heartbroken face turned for a moment and listened. I'd rather be him than me, he said, for he don't know where he going, and I do. And he dragged on towards the almshouse, where his days were to end. To obtain entrance to the island at all, a permit is necessary from the commissioners of charities and correction. Even armed with this authority, one is eyed severely and distrustfully. Innocent-looking visitors have gone over, who developed afterward into reporters. Others, entering as cases, have presently shown the same features and therefore officials are apparently on their guard, and permit and person are closely scanned. The buildings are of feudal character, turreted and battlemented, and of imposing size and height. Yonder is the charity hospital, with its thousands of human wrecks, none more piteous than its husbandless mothers and fatherless children. The old orchards are gone, but trees grew in their place, lining the long avenues or grouping here and there. Birds build and sing in the drooping branches, and doves brood and coo under the eaves, while the blue water flashes under the sunshine, and fresh wind sweeps through and over all. It is with the workhouse we have to deal at present. Its central building flanked by two enormous wings, the northern for men, the southern for women. In the central part are the warders' and physicians' rooms, the laundries, a great room or hall for chapel, but serving as a sewing room for the women and for many other purposes. A new kitchen with all modern appliances has lately been added thus giving up the old one for more laundry space, all needed for 2,000 or more prisoners, 550 of whom are women, being provided for on the ground. Let us follow the workhouse group, who, having left the boat, wait for a few moments under the trees, some looking about curiously, for it is their first time others calling to one another acquaintance. A knot of women in the workhouse uniform come down the road on their way to a day's scrubbing in Bellevue. Their dresses are of heavy bed ticking, 
deep cape sunbonnets hide their faces, but one woman pauses as she passes and looks at the men just forming into line and then at the group of women. God help us, she says. Drink's our curse. If it wasn't for the liquor, we'd all be fine men and women. Sure, why did I ever put the dirty stuff inside me mouth? The women march on silently toward the workhouse door and file into the office, where they are seated on long benches till registered, the same ceremony being gone through with for men and women. The register is a history of each case, and evade as she may, each woman is finally pinned to something like fact. A white-headed woman, certainly seventy, makes her replies in a whisper. She was a lady once, the warden says. She took to drink when her husband died, and she's here most of the time. She went up last Monday, and here it is Thursday, and she's back again for six weeks. I ain't sure, but what she might better be, let to drink herself to death and be done with it, for that's what it will end in. Ragged and filthy, with matted hair and bruised face, the old woman does not lift her white head as she follows the rest into the bathroom, where all are compelled to bathe and put on the uniform, their own clothes being rolled in a bundle, with a numbered wooden tag fastened to it. Twenty minutes later, the transformation is complete, and we find her clean, combed, and generally made over, knitting stockings quietly as any old lady could, on one of the long benches of the general workroom. No talking is allowed, save at fixed times, and a certain amount of work is compulsory. Some two hundred women are employed in the sewing room, knitting stockings for the inmates, darning and repairing generally, and making garments for the Randall's Island children. The number of white heads is appalling, but they are chiefly old hags long given to drink, who began life in low dance houses and are ending it in the gutter, knowing no decency save as it is forced upon them here. The floors are scoured as white as the deck of a man of war, often by most unwilling hands taking here their first lesson in care and order. When the art of scrubbing has been mastered, numbers of the women are detailed to other institutions, and the old inhabitants of the almshouse smile with satisfaction as they remember the past and all its miseries. For many a year, the respectable paupers, often through no fault of their own, were packed in with the order of criminal now sent to the workhouse, and forced to submit to an association degrading and offensive in every way. Drunkenness and petty thieving were the offences which took one there, and abuses of every order reigned. A board of ten governors distributed matters so evenly that no one was responsible, and the place was a pandemonium. At last an attempt was made to draw the line between vice 
and laziness. Comfort was the right of the helpless pauper. It was not the right of the tramp, the habitual drunkard, the rounder who used the island as a spot in which to recover from sprees and go out refreshed for a new one. The workhouse must be a house of industry to lessen pauperism and thus every facility is given for working and it has ceased to be a training school for the penitentiary. The long corridors are spotlessly clean. The wind sweeps through them and all taint flies before it. A savoury smell comes with it, and as we leave the workrooms a bell sounds, and from all quarters the women file silently toward the dining room. Here are long, narrow tables, each place with tin plate and spoon. By the door are enormous baskets of bread cut in hunches, each woman receiving one as she passes in, and looking jealously to see if her neighbour's happens to be bigger. The bill of fare is the same for men and women, cocoa and bread for breakfast, for dinner beef soup with vegetables twice a week, and salt fish and potatoes for Fridays, with salt beef and cabbage on other days, and on Sundays, boiled or roast beef. The kitchen is as spotless as every other portion of the building, and scrubbing is always going on. On the men's side, the shoemaker's shop has some thirty at work, repairing and making. The tailor's shop is equally busy, repairing being incessant, and an even more disagreeable order of work, since the clothes are often filled with vermin, which the ordinary bath has no power to extirpate. In the old days, flogging was the customary punishment, but the dark cell has taken its place, and is dreaded beyond any other form of punishment. All shirk work the moment a keeper's back is turned, or a friendly wall gives momentary shelter from his gaze. Wheelbarrows are dropped, hoers lean on the handles, and all regard even five minutes' respite as so much clear gain. The mass are hardly to be made over. If man or woman shows a desire to reform, or energy that may be turned in better directions, their chance is not here. It is quite plain, after a look or two at these faces, that for this world their chance is practically over. For most of them, the wonder is that they ever reform or even wish to. Born in the slums, and knowing evil from babyhood, the stronger natures gravitate naturally to the penitentiary, the weaker to this place which since the cornerstone was laid has seen over a quarter of a million inmates come and go. Nor is it likely that the number will lessen in spite of the amount of work done among them. To rescue the children is the chief task and the only effectual one, for the rest will be this alternation of debauchery and punishment till the end comes and the potter's field receives them. 
Five minutes' walk under an avenue of green trees and the high fence about the lunatic asylum is reached, the pass shown, and the great buildings stand full before one. Opposite the island, the pretty shore of Ravenswood slopes to the water's edge, and the stately buildings on Ward's Island are just beyond. The asylum itself includes three buildings, the asylum proper, the lodge or madhouse, and the retreat. All the most violent cases are confined in the lodge, where visitors are never allowed. The centre of the main building, octagonal in form, is devoted to offices, a receiving room, etc., and the wards open out from this. The general arrangement is like those of most asylums, but there are no private rooms, and the beds in the dormitories are ranged closely together, with attendants stationed at intervals. In the convalescent ward, the end is fitted up as a reception room for friends, and is brightened with pictures and flowers. Above this is a ward for the milder cases, and here the patients gather, some fifty or so, a few knitting or sewing, but the majority idle. Except in the cases of melancholia, in which it is often impossible to rouse the patient, employment is insisted upon as one chief means of cure. Those in whom mild delusion is the difficulty are soon interested, and the amount of work accomplished is surprising. Two-thirds of the patients are foreign. Restraint is used only in case of necessity, and where rough handling or brutality of any sort occurs, it is the work of some untrained or angry attendant. The doctors protesting against such action even in extreme cases. The medical staff is supplied from Bellevue and is always composed of picked men. The resident physician is autocrat, but consults with the staff, always four or five in number. One attendant is allowed to every fifteen patients four-fifths of whom are here for mania. The rest are idiots, paralytics, or temporarily insane from the horrors. From sixty to seventy are suicidal, and require close watching. Now and then one makes a break for the river, and one or two have thus drowned themselves, but accidents are few. The form of entrance is much like that of the workhouse, so far as registration and bath are concerned. The patient who cannot be entered without a certificate of insanity is examined by the resident physician, who determines in what ward the patient shall be placed. For the most part, all save violent cases are assigned to the first, till doctors and attendants have had time to judge the nature of the case. As many as possible are kept in the convalescent ward, which has privileges not allowed in others. Chronic harmless cases are allowed all possible freedom, and work in one of the shops or in the sewing room, always under observation. 
basket weaving and mat making are favourite industries, and several of the patients crochet the beautiful Irish lace which is on sale in the visitors' room. Twenty acres of land belong to the asylum and are cultivated to the highest pitch by the patients. Flowers are everywhere and the greenhouse is another source of pleasure to the workers in it. The water supply flows through submarine pipes from the Croton Reservoir and is abundant. In the new cookhouse, soup is boiled in set kettles through which steam pipes pass and is carried to the dining room in huge pails. The dietary is a generous one. Soup predominates, but it is of the most nourishing order and there is no limit as to quantity. Knives and forks are allowed to very few and tin plates have proved the best form of dish as they cannot be broken. Over 200 were dining together in perfect quiet, save for little outbursts here and there. Mush and molasses on Friday always rouses objection. The Irishman has never taken kindly to Indian corn in any form and resents being forced to use it. Till very lately there was small provision for amusement, but the attendant physicians realised long ago how vital a factor this was in cure, and begged for larger quarters. A large and airy hall has at last been built, and here at least once a week all who are not too excited by numbers gather together dance, sing, or are given some light entertainment. The delight in this is a thing that passes on from one week to the next, and every scrap of ornament is treasured and put on for the occasion. More than one of the patients believe that the resident physician is God, and address prayers and sing hymns to him, this being the prelude to dance or game if he enters the hall. A maiden of fifty believes that she will ruin her complexion unless she wears continuously a mask cut from an old pasteboard box and she waves a fan of the same material in the most stately manner. As in every asylum, there is one who believes herself the Queen of Heaven and daily receives dispatches from God, and one who owns it and everything in it, doctors included. Across the room sits a patient who receives guests affably, and announces herself as the widow of President Garfield. A rag doll on the little table by her bed is one of her forty-five children, all of whom are grown up and doing well, most of them, she says, in fine positions. Near her is a little woman with twinkling blue eyes and a particularly merry laugh, who dances with delight, but pauses at intervals to whisper of the horrors she could tell if she were disposed. Murders by the score! Yes, by the score, she says, looking suspiciously about her. 
but the victims are thrown into the river at once, so that no one has to mention it. Take care, I shall be heard. And she laughs again and nods to her partner, a silent man, who chuckles to himself at intervals and moves his lips noiselessly. Another, at present, cut in pigeon wings, learned in his youth, has a nest of snakes in his stomach, and sits down suddenly, crying with a loud voice, Oh Lord, they're squirming again! It is a popular delusion that makes the test of insanity wild eyes and inflamed countenance. Often weeks pass before a patient says an irrational word, and save for some special delusion, many are perfectly competent for all ordinary affairs of life. Yonder, for instance, is an admirable tinker, when he can spare time. Most of it, however, is occupied in standing by the river, waiting for it to dry up, when he intends to cross and resume his station in society. Now and then he enters the office and applies for a pass, but when told that he must first get a Paris hat, he nods assent and goes out contentedly. One patient, mad from confirmed opium-eating, shouted continuously for a coffin. For the love of God, bring a coffin! I've been dead ten days! What do you mean by not bringing a coffin? In the dead house sits an old patient who would rejoice to meet his wishes if he could. Corpses are his delight. One coffin fills him with satisfaction, and every additional one is a fuller joy. He will not leave them, but sits like an ancient and always good-natured ghoul, wishing he could pile the coffins higher. Under the trees sits a one-armed French soldier who believes he is one of Napoleon's marshals and that the emperor is to come again. An Irish philosopher, a graduate of Dublin University, and here from drink and opium, owns the island, but lends it by the day to the institutions. Tomorrow, maybe, and I'll have them all pulled down, he says reflectively. I'm thinking fine gardens might look better and more cheerful-like, but there's no hurry. When the time comes, there's enough to carry out me orders and no bother to meself. There's no hurry at all, and I wouldn't be discommoding the doctors, not I. Down the long walk comes a group of women out with an attendant, all of them in the asylum uniform of Calico. Less unpleasant than the bed-ticking dresses of the workhouse prisoners, a detachment of whom are working here. One little woman, walking with bent head, raises it suddenly and emits a piercing toot. She thinks herself a steam engine and whistles periodically to the rage of the others, who recognise her delusion but are wholly unconscious of their own. So it goes, and for each is the story of a blighted life and often the ruin of other lives closely bound to theirs. It is a pauper asylum, 
and fifty years ago all know what fate would have been theirs, and in some remote country towns is still the fate of one so afflicted. Here, in spite of the inevitable overcrowding, and of a thousand difficulties, all that science can do is done, and the percentage of cures is a steadily increasing one. But for most, death is the best friend, and if the patient waiter in the dead house rejoices over a fresh coffin, he has better reason than he knows, for to its silent occupant no other release could have come. For the penitentiary, the story has practically been told in that of the workhouse. It is a more sombre building, has more rigid discipline, heavier labour, a more disgraceful uniform. It is the convicts who have built the heavy sea wall about the island and quarried the stone for most of the buildings. They mend and repair roads, and in as many ways as possible return a portion of the money expended in providing a place of punishment. The prisoner sent up to fill out a sentence goes through the same routine as all who enter any of the many institutions here. The register is his history in brief, and, like the portraits of the rogues' gallery, is a standing menace to him. Yet hard as is the prisoner's lot, it is often the convict's first glimpse of regular life and decent food. He learns a trade, perhaps, for there are many occupations taught under the prison roof, and gains an appetite for the coarse but sufficient food. There is a chapel and a library, and all the alleviations at present allowed for a more humane view is now taken of the prisoner and his fate than even ten years ago. Reformation is more and more the thought, and the convict here, as elsewhere, reaps the benefit of the new view. But routine necessarily remains much the same. The long day of labour under guard, the long night after the hour has come in which all are locked in their narrow cells, is the same for all. There is stealthy communication and knowledge of each other that would amaze the keepers, who suspect but can seldom detect the method. Some learn to read and spend such spare time as is theirs in reading, and most of them leave the prison better in health than when they entered it. The prison has its own special staff of officers from warden to doctors and chaplain, its infirmary, and all the many outbuildings required for the maintenance of fifteen hundred and more prisoners. But its story is the story of all prisons, save the one or two fortunate enough to have at their head men who can count crime, chiefly a disease, and proceed to cure it. For speculation or fact as to this theory, there is no room here, but it is certain a new science is being constructed, and that all future methods with crime will be largely coloured by it. When the day comes, 
prevention will lead instead of follow and we may believe that prison walls will contract rather than broaden and fewer inmates look from the grated windows of the place of punishment end of chapter 18